We took them on board. Uh, we didn't have body bags on board at that time. So the first lieutenant said to me, I want you to make up a coffin for them. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Submarine alert, surface alert. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went, did the march. stations, I went to that turret. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea, a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. In 1965, Australia's involvement in Vietnam escalated into a state of war, upgrading its commitment to one of military security for South Vietnam. Some of the stories in this episode start a little bit before that escalation, A few of the veterans here served at Confrontation, the Indonesia-Malaysia Confrontation, also known as Confrontasi, which occurred from 1963 to 66. We begin this episode with Willie Beatty. Willie was not too concerned with the geopolitical tension in Southeast Asia. What mattered more day-to-day was how darn hot the ship's boiler room could get. Tell me about your day-to-day job as a stoker. Oh, day-to-day job was uh, diesel engines, the boilers, freshwater tanks, cleaning tanks, oh, things like that. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Steam generators, power ste- after steer. I did a lot of work down the after steering on the Sydney, but mainly it. Power boats. In the boiler room, you go down there with your overalls on, and as soon as you hit the bottom plate, you're covered in sweat. And you're covered in sweat for the full four hours till you come back out. That's just that's how hot it is. It's well over 100 degrees, and the steam is just everywhere. So you absolutely perspiring non-stop. So if you've ever taken salt tablets to try and keep up the salt, so that's about it. Just so bloody hot. That's all. I've heard you uh, go up to the cooks and uh, get them to give you some ice to try and cool down. Well, we we used to. Well, that's for the cooks. So we had the key anyway. Kick the cooks didn't know. We had the keys to everything. The stokers. So we we the keys to the ice machine. We we run the ice machine. We used to just get our own ice, but we still let the cooks think they give it to us. So. Think they're they've been the heroes. Yeah, they just, they used to uh, give us eggs and things so we could make breakfast down below. So what we call down below in the, in the hole. Four hour shift, four hours on, four hours off. So imagine you need that kind of break that working at those temperatures. Oh mate, it was uh, well actually it was four hours on, eight hours off. You just slept because you were just so hot and stinking, and you did your, did your own laundry and things like that. That was all. So. And uh, very rarely you get up what they call up top upstairs. Uh, it was really too hot or you because we were working all through the middle of the night and everything. So Did you get to interact much with the rest of the crew? You don't really. It's Maybe during weekends you do, but not, not really because you're all busy with uh, doing your own thing. So. Like if, when you're down the hole, you come back out, you have a shower and you're in the bed or you're having a lunch and you're doing something, you know. So It's not just hot. There's quite a bit of manual labour. And... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we used to do what you call evaporators, make... Uh, Fresh water out of seawater. I mean, you can imagine what that's like. Just boiling, bubbling away, boiling all day. So just got to keep turning the little valve a little bit to 
kept the flow constant and put what they call make feed water, which is water for the boilers. It's got to be pure water. So then if it wasn't pure, you had uh, fresh water for drinking and washing. So you're doing that all the time. Or you're doing generators, get electricity up, things like that. So, yeah, it was uh, pretty full on, yeah. So you're on Yarra. Where is it first sent when you're on board? The first trip we did was to Portland. My, my very first trip as an ordinary seaman. And after that, we left Portland, went to Sydney, and we worked up and we went to Borneo, Malaysia, for the Indonesian confrontation. We did that. So, but first of all, we took Melbourne, as I say, we took Melbourne to Butterfield Airfield, got the planes off. Tell me about the confrontation. Well, I was a, a gunner at the time, or recruit gunner, and I was working, at, they call it a turret, firing a big gun. And uh, we used to sail up and down patrolling, and we used to catch what they call the bum boats, which is illegal. Infiltrators, we just, uh, which we caught quite a few of them. Uh, infiltrators, then we'd uh, load them up and take them ashore and drop them off ashore and go back patrolling. And if the army callers, which was quite often, we'd go up river and fire the gun because they wanted naval fire support. So we'd get up there and fire the, naval, fire the gun at them where they wanted it. And we'd come back out and continue patrolling. Then we'd go back to Singapore, refuel, re-ammo, and then come back out and do it all again. And how old were you by this point? I was only 18. 18 a bit, yeah. Well, most of the boys were 18 a bit, yeah. Did you have any thoughts or feelings about what the ship was actually doing at that time or you're just focused on your job? Well, you just focused on your job, really. That's uh, If the Army guys didn't want to bombard, so we just did it for them because they were in trouble. So, okay, we'll go and do it. We just did it, did what we were asked to do. So that was basically it. Never sort of look at the politics of it. So, And that was about it. Willie wasn't the only one at Confrontasi. This is David Dwyer. We did patrols up and down the Malacca Strait because we were at confrontation with the Indonesians at that time. Confrontasi? Yeah and uh, went down with a task force of two British carriers, HMOS Melbourne, commando carrier HMOS Bulwark, several World War II frigates, a Lock Killsport, Lock Loman, Vendetta, Vampire, I think the Pukaki, which was a New Zealand frigate, uh, various other ships, HMS Leopard, uh, which was a radar ship, just to um, show the uh, Dr Sakano that we would passage the Malacca Straits that didn't belong to them because they said they'd closed it. And we went up and down there for two days. Jim Dixon also got to Confrontasi and with the responsibility of command. But let's backtrack a bit first. So after you come back home and are married, what's the next job that the Navy oh, has for you? Good. He's got married, send him to sea. You know, um, I was appointed as assistant fleet navigator in HMAS Melbourne which had just been repaired after the Voyager collision of February 64. And there I stayed in that capacity until mid-65 when I was appointed in command of an inshore minesweeper, HMAS Gull. We'd bought six of these minesweepers from Royal Navy. They were being used not at that stage as minesweepers, but more as patrol vessels and uh, patrol boats and gunboats, more or less. And we rotated, pair at a, t- at a time, through the Far East, part of the Far East fleet, and patrolled. I went up there at the early 66, took Gull up there, small ship, crew of 25, but wonderful experience in command. Young lieutenant, I'd left home with a baby just arrived and over before we set off. And the experience of confrontation was a, a very interesting one, but a very ageing one. I was, what, just 30 years old. You're 30, newly married, new child, yes. new command, yes. and you've got confrontasi or confrontation to deal yes. with. Yes, and we didn't know what on earth was going to happen with confrontation. 
President Sukarno in Indonesia, I'm not sure that he knew just what he was doing. He was pinpricking here and there. And uh, that he was trying to needle the Brits into and the nations of the Far East, and Singapore and Malaysia. He wanted, he was unhappy with the situation there. And it was a very awkward period in that we never knew what we might confront. The first time we sailed from Singapore and I, the extent of the responsibilities vested in me came home very strongly there. I mean, I had my responsibilities, yes, to my wife and new child back home, but for the lives and welfare of 25 young sailors who were all nearly all younger than I was. And uh, I felt I'd had an excellent training and all that, but I felt as apprehensive as one could possibly be. But you didn't know what you were sailing into. You didn't know whether the sampan that you were going to go alongside and board, whether it was going to be loaded with explosives, whether you were going to be shot at or what. And uh, the safety of those men was my responsibility. So I say it was a very ageing sort of experience for a young fella, but um, it makes you grow up very quickly. Did any significant contacts happen? We had significant contacts, yes, and uh, we had some confrontations with bumboats and sampans and things in the Malacca Strait in particular. There weren't incidents that blew up into anything major, but we were suspicious of various people and we had cause to destroy some of these boats that we came across and to pass the crews thereof on to the customs or the police. And we patrolled there, we patrolled in the Johor Strait, Malacca Strait and over on the east off Borneo, Labuan, and it was a lot of sea time, uh, but great experience to get under your belt. Now back to David Dwyer. And then back to Singapore, refuelled and everything else, and uh, went down off Penang as mothership to the six Australian minesweepers who were doing patrols up and down uh, for any um, infiltrators coming across from Indonesia. We did the patrols as well, but we were mother to the uh, six uh, minesweepers. We did that for about three or four weeks, then back to Singapore, Singapore to Hong Kong, Hong Kong back to Singapore. And in December, early or about mid-December, we left for Australia, got alongside about the 21st of December, where I was then sent on leave posting to HMAS Cerberus to do my Cook's course. February, the Cook's course started in Cerberus and that went for 12 weeks of practical and theory. There was a small school of cookery, so therefore there were two classes. The class senior to us cooked in the morning and we washed up and cleaned up for them. And in the afternoon we cooked and they cleaned up and washed up for us. After three months, I passed out as a qualified cook and got my right arm rate, which is a gold star with a C in it. That made me somebody. And uh, guys were posted all over Australia, other ships. I was posted to the main kitchen or main galley in service as a AB2, AB second class, as a cook into a watch. It consisted of a uh, leading cook who was the boss who ran the uh, watch or shift with about 10 other cooks. I moved about the different galleys, hospital galley, a few months, wardroom galley officers for a few months, gunroom galley, which is the midships and galley for a couple of months, chiefs and petty officers galley for a couple of months. Just uh, They do this to give you experience and all the different uh, amounts of people that you feed from there. I then posted to HMAS Anzac. She was an old ship, 
while David was training to feed a ship, Doug Symes Jr. was busy storing the food on one. So let's talk about Vietnam. You're yeah. first deployed there on the Parramatta. I was, yeah. Uh, that was in 1965. So you were there right at the start. Yes. Uh, yeah, what happened was uh, our captain, Captain Percy, called us all down to the quarter deck. It was, would have been in around about February 1965, and they had a map up. He had a map up at, on the end of the quarter deck, and he said, we, well, I've just brought you all down here to tell you what our... Our deployment will be, and this is to stay within the ship. Well, how in the world he was expecting that to stay within the ship, I don't know. Whether it worked or not, I don't think it did. However, this is what he said. He said, now, this is where we're going. We didn't know where Vietnam was. We didn't even, never ever heard of it before. He said, now, here it is here. It's in, there's the Gulf of Tonkin, and there's Vung Tau here, and there's a, uh, the port that we're going into here. And I said, oh, yeah. We'll be going up there uh, with the Sydney, who will be uh, taking troops up and all that sort of thing. Well, anyway, that changed because we ended up being up there and then the Sydney came up and we picked the Sydney up just north of Borneo and uh, and went with it up into Cameron Bay, which is Vung Tau, and we stayed off the ship for a couple of days. And I think we were, we were with Yarra and supplies stayed outside the heads. They didn't come in. And I think Duchess was there too. It's a bit bit hazy. I'm not I'm not quite sure, but that's that's how I seem to, to remember it. So was that first briefing? Was that when you first learned that we were yes. at war? Yeah, yeah. What was the reaction like among the crew? Well, I don't think I had much. I just thought, well, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, that's what we do. Oh, I didn't have any. No strong opinion. No, that's my job. We're on the ship, and this is what the ship is going to do. I do remember there was quite a few blokes trying to get off. You know, they wanted to get off the ship, and some of them did, and we got some new ones on. And I think these were the older hands that have probably may have experienced things like this before and knew what the ramifications could be, because we didn't know really what to expect, whether there was going to be any, you know, fighting or, or anything. or What the Navy's role would be in that? No, sort of... it was all new to us, you know, like... Uh, we were just selected for the role, and, and to tell the truth, we were, we were fairly well, uh, not brainwashed, but indoctrinated into the way of the Navy, and you did what you were told, and uh, you just you just went ahead and did it. Uh, I, I had no no fears or, or anything about it. I was fairly uh, elated to know that we were going to actually do something, that we were going to go up north and do things, and uh, and, and as, it, as it unfolded, we didn't do much. We just sat up there. We had the... You watched the Sydney as it made its first voyage as the yes, famous we Bungtail were, Ferry. Yeah, we were, we were on. Yes, we, we were. And they went in and they offloaded. We set off. And I remember a few few little things, though, that happened. I, I remember the... We used to have boats going around the ship and they were, they were dropping these uh, charges in the water. They were going off and all the old engines were turned off. Uh, I slept on the upper deck because it was it was that that hot inside. It was very hard to work uh, down below because of the heat. You know, it just kept on building up and building up. We had divers over the side. They told me that we had divers over the side because they thought that the uh, the Viet Cong, who we really didn't never heard of before, but we were told that they would could come down with limpet mines and stick them on the bottom of the ship and blow the ship up, which we thought was a bit of a joke. You know, we we didn't think that had really happened. However, if I can jump forward, probably uh, 15 years later, I was talking to a chap who was a chief petty officer in the uh, US Navy, and he was in one of these details that was actually uh, going there looking for limpet mines under the ship, and he said they found some. I don't think they were on the Australian ships, but they did find some. 
Whether they were on the US ships or not, I don't know. But he said it was all actual factual. So, Well, I think they were right to be worried about that. Limpet mines crippled the home fleet in the Mediterranean in World War Two. Mm. There was a lot of historical precedent for us, and they might have doubted the Viet Cong's ability to do that. But... Yeah, but you see, it was so early in the in the in the thing that uh, we didn't really believe that there was going to be any real. You didn't feel like you were trauma. really at war. No, no, we didn't. But the the threat was there. But you know, when you're, a, I just turned nineteen. You know, yeah. so I was still a kid, and I wasn't in the the pointy end of of guns and things like that. I was in the feeding people. So you know, I was in the hospitality side. So to me, the, the the threat and the thought of war was just it wasn't there. Conceptual, um, abstract rather than real. Yeah, that's right. So you're off the coast of Vietnam. Things don't feel as dire as some of the hype may lead you to believe. Before we leave Vietnam, though, I'm curious, you were, would have been in the period of all the propaganda of the great fears of the communist threats sweeping through down to Australia. Did you feel removed from that by being on a naval vessel or were you exposed to all that hype? And oh, we, we never, ever, never heard it. You know, we would get the ABC probably at lunchtime if you, if you weren't asleep because, you know, you'd go down low on your bunk at lunchtime because you, you're tired. I think I think I was fairly much removed from it. I was 19, 18, 19, you know, so my main uh, thoughts in life were, how am I going to get all this stuff up to the galley and are we going to have a beer issue tonight and I wonder what's on for dinner and, and uh, I'm going to have to buy another carton of smokes and all that sort of thing, you know. So you leave Vietnam. Where are you off to next on Parramatta? Well, we went down to uh, to Pricey. We ended up down in uh, Singapore and we were working uh, with the uh, the Malaysian Navy because this was during the time of the Indonesian confrontation as well. And uh, our main job there was to do uh, patrols uh, up, up the uh, Sunda Strait, which is the the uh, bit of water between uh, Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore down there. And then we used to go over to Borneo because uh, Malaysia had the northern part of uh uh, Borneo, which was part of their, their place there, Tawau and places like that. And Indonesia sort of had the rest of it. And they were trying to take over that northern part. And they had a lot of uh, British troops there, Australian troops as well. The Indonesian confrontation was a, a thing that doesn't get talked about a lot, but there was a lot of activity with the Australian Australian vessels and the Australian army, also uh, helicopters and things like that that used to act through that area. I went on to about 1966. I remember being in Singapore. Uh, we were in a bar there, and uh, it was at night time, and, you know, young, three of us, young blokes, and this fella came and he said, you got to go, you got to go. I said, what for? Or we said, what for? He said, the communists are coming, the communists are coming, and they will hurt you. He said, they will hurt you. You have to go, you have to go. So, you know, we were just having a beer, and the next thing you know, we're in a taxi and we're gone. There used to be a fair bit of that going on, disruption uh, in the streets and fighting and all that sort of stuff. Reds under the bed. Yeah, all that sort of, yeah, yeah. And uh, whilst I never experienced anything uh, out of it, uh, that's, that's what was happening there. But I suppose still young 19-year-old use just, okay, the ship's going here, I've got to just keep the cooks supplied and uh, oh, same well, gig. Well, if you didn't, you you, uh, you received a foot in a, an area of your body that you didn't really want it, you know. So you had to do your job, irregardless of what else was going on around you. The harder 
part of it was closing up in in watches. They used to go down to uh, two watches and things like that. So the meal times would be disrupted, and there'd be different times for meals. And the cooks were were at a bit of a disadvantage. They'd be working fairly hard. You know, you're living with them and. Uh, Temperatures in the ship fairly high, and uh, just because of the nature of the work and the conditions and all that sort of stuff, things get a bit. Crew starts getting a bit disgruntled and things like that, you know. But all in all, our ship was a pretty happy ship uh, with with Commander Percy in charge, and uh, we didn't have any any real hassles apart from just a you know the normal things in life that people go through and living in uh, close conditions and that. And all in all, it was pretty good. John Carroll remembers vividly his first trip to Vietnam. My mother and father actually came up from Melbourne, drove up from Melbourne to see me off. What did your father think by this point? Because you joined the Navy against his advice. He was a bit tentative. Mum was anxious. But I had a, an old chief ship right on there that knew my father. And he said, look, Tom, he said, I'll look after young Johnny while we're away. It was a gesture that I never expected from my parents. But uh, they did do it, so... But uh, we left we left Sydney on the 8th of April with the 7th Battalion on board and uh, one of my close friends was a soldier on board. The first week was fairly quiet. The soldiers were going about their business on the flight deck, making all sorts of weird noises and jumping up and down and keeping themselves fit. And we just went on with our normal duties, which involved damage control watches, normal shipboard routine. The only problem being that the ship was designed to have 1,100 sailors on board and when we went to uh, Vietnam we would cut the ship's company down by half to make room for the for the soldiers. How many soldiers would you have been transporting? About 400, There's, 500? Uh, 550 on the first trip, on that particular trip. 550 of 7RAR. We picked up to return them. We returned with um, 5 RAR. And the next trip we took two RAR up and we brought back six RAR, which had fought at the Battle of Long Tan, D Company. And I got to know quite a few of the people on from six RAR. Sergeants all lived and ate in the same messes as us. Uh, I got to know Bob Buick. Bob Buick, who won the military medal at the Battle of Long Tan. My part of ship on, on Sydney was on Port Cable, raising alone that that particular piece of uh, equipment and Bob stood alongside me at, at the capstan and wanted to know how long it was going to take to get out of this bastard of a place. And can you describe your day-to-day duties on the ship? They could be anything from fixing up the plumbing on board, blocked heads, to uh, doing running repairs on the wooden boats they had, to uh, pulling valves apart. There were general duties that a shipwright did. Uh, I consider them to be more handyman type things. I rebuilt a wardrobe in the Commander E's cabin. We had sliding doors on it and the sliding doors had fallen out. So had to re- repair that. The normal duties of damage control watchkeeping. Four hours on uh, second base two, which is right alongside HQ1. I didn't complain because it was air conditioned. While you were there, I, I used to train my damage control parties, being the petty officer in, in charge of that area. I virtually had to learn myself what to do and then the young fellows on damage control work. Uh, what they were to expect, what they were expected to do. We had a lot of 15 and 16 year olds on board. And how old are you by this stage? I'm 22, 22, 23. I was looked upon as a, a bit of an old man by the, the young guys, and it was virtually on the job training. And at what point are you posted to Yarra? Are you at Vietnam or on the way back? On the way back. Tell me about the helicopter ride. In the mess that I was in uh, was the uh, the POUCs, the Petty Officer Underwater Control 
ratings. A fellow by the name of Hossel, everybody knew him as Hoss. He was the PAUC on one of the Westland Wessex. He said, ah, oh, you'll be right. I'll make sure you get a good seat and when you're over here, just do what I ask you to do. And I said, right, I'll do that. We had foul weather jackets, very similar to the jacket I wore this morning. Uh, you put your cap inside your foul weather jacket. The toolbox had been taken across. Westland Wessex is, a, is not exactly a quiet aircraft. I was a bit, what do they call it, endogenous trepidation. But anyway, uh, when we were hovering over Yarra, he said, right, well, I'll clip you on. Remember what they've been doing on our trips up to... They gave demonstrations of on, on board ship of transferring people from ship to ship by helicopter. He said, you've seen what they've done. Go out with your arms out. And so I proceeded to do that. And as soon as I was out on my own, I went straight up and grabbed the Y. <laughs> I don't suppose I should have done that, but I did. Uh, I had a life jacket on and I had this sling under my arms and a hell of a downdraft from the from the helicopter really clears the cobwebs away. Next thing I know, I'm being grabbed by the by the leg by the chief boatswain's mate on Yarra, a guy by the name of Toomba Morrison. And he said, come here, you skinny bastard. Welcome to Yarra. Uh, so I went on board there and uh, next thing I know, I'm talking to an old shipmate of mine from my reserve time. Gary and I have known each other from the dockyard, so a bit of a homecoming, if you like. It was good to be on a ship that I'd actually had something to do with. I'd uh, been on all the sea trials of Yarra. And did you stay on Yarra for the Strategic Reserve? I stayed on Yarra for the, my stint in the Strategic Reserve, came back in April 68. Was your time there eventful? One particular instance sticks in my mind and gives me a kind of a, a reminder every so often was... Uh, Yarra, both Yarra and Stuart were in Penang in November, early November, 67. The word had gotten to the ship that there had been a Shackleton bomber had gone down off the top end of Sumatra. Yarra being the outboard ship of the two, we went looking for the survivors of the uh, Shackleton bomber. We found them a day later. They were in a bit of a mess. Uh, there was at least two bodies that were on there, I think there was three, and two survivors in a raft. We took them on board. Uh, we didn't have body bags on board at that time. So the first lieutenant said to me, I want you to make up a coffin for them, a box to put them in. So I made up a box, put it in the, the chief petty officer's bathrooms and filled it with ice, put the bodies in the ice. How was that received by the chief petty officers? I really didn't know and I really couldn't have cared, to be quite honest, because the... the uh, the upshot of it was myself and my yeoman, because he'd helped me put the boxes together and because I'd lowered the boxes down into the chief petty officer's mess, it seemed natural to the command that I should help with the putting the bodies in the box. How was that? Well, it, it plays on my mind a bit. I don't know about Peter, Peter Cardwell. Peter Cardwell remembers it, but he was one of those young ordinary seamen and I think it kind of went over the top of his head. But he had to go down every so often and refill the ice. When we got back to Penang, they took the took the bodies out of the boxes and took them ashore in aluminium coffins. I can remember that quite distinctly. And then the uh, first lieutenant and the engineer, uh, he got involved, said, well, what are you going to do with the plywood? What are you going to do with the box? They said, well, once we've drained it, I'm going to ditch it. So I took a pull and pulled it apart. The first lieutenant was quite happy with it, but the engineer wasn't. So I got charged for the price of the plywood which I thought was a bit rude. Petty and outrageous, I would say. I uh, told the engineering officer what I thought of him, 
and my promotion was stalled from 68 right through to 72. I was not made up to chief petty officer until 72. Because of your colourful review of the decision? My colourful review of the parentage of the engineering officer, no. He bailed me up when we got back to to uh, Williamstown Naval Dockyard. We were supposed to go straight into dry dock. When you go into dry dock, you're supposed to offload all your ammunition. Uh, we hadn't unloaded 1,200 rounds of four and a half inch ammunition. I don't know who okayed it, but um, one of the jobs that the engineer wanted me to do was put a handrail over the top of a manhole leading directly into the magazine. And to do that, I would have to weld it onto the steel deck. And I said, I wasn't prepared to do it. And he said, why not? I said, because we've still got a full load of ammunition on board. You'll do as you're told. I said, no, I won't. I said, I know the workings of this dockyard. If I was to go and see the dockyard shop committee and tell them that we've still got a full load of ammunition on board, this ship would be black banned until the ship was taken out of dry dock and unloaded and then brought back in again. And I said, you can just imagine the kerfuffle that would cause. Oh, I was called all sorts of... And I responded in like form. But the captain of the ship was Andrew Robertson, Captain Andrew Robertson, who was a gentleman. When I left Yarra, he said, I hope this doesn't follow you. Well, it did. Anyway, as luck would have it, when I was posted back to the Sydney for the second time, Captain Robertson was the relieving captain. One of the first things, the first days I was on, on Sydney, he was doing his rounds with the outgoing commanding officer, Captain Red Merson. I took this following incident to be a thank you and an apology from Andrew Robertson. I was standing at the gangway when the entourage, the captain, the two captains and the, his entourage were coming around, bugler, commander E, commander L, commander S, you name it, and the shipwright officer. Andrew Robertson took his cap off, gave his telescope to one of their underlings, wandered across to me and said, shook my hand and said, old ships, good to see you again, Carol. I fronted the table in November, 72, and Andrew Robertson said to me, you've passed this two petty officers exam four times and you've not been recommended for promotion. I said, no. I said, I think you know why. And he said, I think you've done your bit by the Navy, Carol. I'll make sure the Navy does the bit by you. I promoted, straight, promoted two petty officers straight away, 12 months backdated. Including pay backdated? Wouldn't go so far as to say that they were that generous, but seniority was backdated. We spoke with Andrew Robertson for this podcast and he is very passionate about the Navy and looking after the crew and the crew adhering to his standards, but if they adhered to his standards, then they were right by him and I can imagine him looking after you in that situation. Willie Beatty's first trip to Vietnam was on 24 April 1966. Where did Yarra go next? I uh, went to, well, did a few things, Hong Kong and ran the Far East and uh, then come back to Melbourne. Did nine months over there, nine months overseas. Then we came back to Melbourne and I got off and went down to HMO service to do my, what they call a stakers course. Did my stakers course with all the same bunch of blokes I joined up with. Then we joined HMO Sydney, went to HMO Sydney and uh, did the first next, missed two trips and did the next four trips to Vietnam, four or five trips to Vietnam. So your first trip to Vietnam on the Sydney is 24 April 1966. Do you remember that clearly? I do actually, yeah, yeah. Because I remember... <laughs> They were throwing stuff at us as army guys boarding. There wasn't a very good feeling. They were, you weren't allowed to go ashore because if we went ashore and we caused trouble, we'd be locked up, not the civilians. So you just sort of stuck to ourselves and we, when we sailed, we just, we sailed, you know. Did it feel serious though? I mean, you're sailing with, uh, you know, four or 500 soldiers on board and you've got Vampire Yarra and Melbourne escorting you. 
No, no, it was actually that was uh, the only problem we had was getting fed. I mean, you got all those blokes here lining up. They thought it was they thought we were in heaven on a stick while we were getting fed ice cream and everything. And they just kept going back. So by the time we'd finished our, our uh, four-hour shift or something, it came up, there was nothing left. So, puff, and that was really good. They're a good bunch of blokes. We mingled well with them. He's doing all their life firing off the back of the ship and things. So, I don't know, we mingled well with them because we patrol at night to make sure everyone was all right. So, no, no, very good, very good, good bunch of blokes. They just didn't appreciate to leave enough left over for the stokers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. They, don't, they didn't appreciate the stokers, they no stokers. But when we did drills, they knew how to get out of the road, so that was the main thing. So, no, everyone went very well with them. Do you remember when you first pulled into Vungtau? I remember pulling in, and all I could see was a big hill, and I just kept, I think it was the Yanks were bombarding it, just firing planes flying past and bombarding it all the time. That's my first memory of the place. Then we just unloaded and because it's full on trying to get the ship empty and get the blokes out of the road and sort uh, of unloading away we went then. So but that was my first memory of the helicopters. So it was just the noise. It was just non-stop. To see them bombing like that, it was quite amazing. Yeah, quite amazing, yeah. Did it feel like a war zone? Oh, it was. Yes, it was. You could definitely tell it was that. There's all the buzz and activity. It was just planes and helicopters going everywhere. So and ships all around the place. So, yeah, it was quite... Uh, Quite an experience, quite an experience, yeah. I do remember that I think the Sydney was attacked by aircraft. I'm not quite sure. And I remember somewhere along the line here were sort of like, look, we're going to get dive bombed, then they changed their mind. I remember something along those lines. That was about all. I mean, uh, playing a lot of games, a lot of card games with the, the Army guys, playing Euchre, Bridge. I think it's because we had beer issues. They loved, they loved the beer issues. So just mingling with them. No, no, they had good fun. They were worried about it because they had to make hammocks. They didn't know what a hammock was, so... Helping them make their hammocks and fun things like that. No, they it was quite enjoyable for them, I think, anyway. But so they love the bloody food. So you do three trips on Sydney. Yep. I got off to Sydney and I went and did a what they call a brick and lagging course, which is lag all the steam steam lines, do all that with asbestos. Then I joined HMAS Anzac as a brick and lagger. And Anzac hadn't been out of Australia in X amount of years because it was a training ship. And it escorted Sydney to bloody Vietnam. How's that been on the other side of that? Been on the trains, it was diff- very different because, I mean, there were young kids and we had no guns, for God's sake. I mean, we couldn't do nothing, but uh, we just took the Sydney up and I think we went to Hong Kong after that as well. I'm not sure on that either. But I did 12 months in Anzac and I uh, got off of there and did, uh, was down service for 12 to 18 months and I joined HMOs doing. What was Hong Kong like back then? Mate, I loved Hong Kong. I've always liked the Far East, what we call rabbits, the presents you buy and just the sights and... No, I, I really liked it. We did a lot with the boys. We went to uh, the floating restaurants. Went and seen, that was the first time on that. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were 18, 18-year-old kids doing this, and it was bloody amazing. It was an 18-year-old kid to be doing this. And I still, I've still got the same mates today, and I sent me photos about a month ago of us in civvies in 1964. And I says, no, no, we are never in civvies. And he sent me the pictures, and guess what? There we are in civvies. So I don't know where we got the clothes from. He said, we bought them, but anyway. But uh, to go in the floating restaurant... Oh, and all the movies, everybody been there. And all of a sudden, you're an eight-year-old kid walking on these these things. And at uh, raffles, go to raffles and things, you know, just... That was sort of your first overseas holiday then. Yeah, yeah, yeah holiday. <laughs> That's when we got our first tats, being sailors, yes. No, good fun. No, I didn't have much trouble. I only got in trouble once with me mate. Could chase down the street by uh, 100 Chinese with bamboo sticks trying to get us. And I still to this day don't know what we've done. Because I said, mate, what have you done? He said, don't worry, but just keep running. So we did... What tattoos did you get? Uh, just today, we had a girl, Haran, an anchor and a couple of sharks, that's all, main things. Navy classics. Yeah, Navy, Navy tattoos, yeah, yeah. After having a taste of command, Jim Dixon found himself in some intense action 
in Vietnam. When do you eventually leave the minesweeper to take up a new position? I left the minesweeper at the end of 66, immediately joined HMAS Perth, which is the first, second of the guided missile destroyers to come out to Australia. I joined her as navigator. Having been God on board the little minesweeper, king of all you, you, know, you, you could survey, you suddenly were uh, injected into a considerably bigger ship, crew of 325, and it, you come down off your lofty perch of being in command, and it does your soul a hell of a lot of good and brings you down to earth. It's good to be humbled a bit. Yes, it's good to be humbled, and, and one was. The experience in Vietnam, uh, in HMAS Perth, which included a nine-month deployment to Vietnam from in 67, 68, was a, a strong contrast to the one in Gull, because although I'd had operational experience in Gull and in Tobruk briefly, uh, the one in Vietnam was intense and very demanding physically, mentally, and required put your skills as navigator to the ultimate test. We were bombarding the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We spent some time supporting Australian troops down off the coast of South Vietnam. We spent some time in, in the Gulf of Tonkin, a lot of time bombarding the Ho Chi Minh Trail, logistic depots and that sort of thing. We were fired on October 67 by coastal batteries, which hit the ship at 8 o'clock one morning when we were going in for a bombardment run. We had to clear out and scoot back to... Subic Bay for repairs there. They were done in short space of time. We were back on the gun line before long. It was a, a pretty tense period, operationally very demanding, as I say, of, and a good test use, endurance and skills, but also the most wonderful experience because you know you felt you were putting yourself to the test of all the training you'd done. You saw how you stood up under fire yourself, and I'll never lose in my mind the picture of, you know, that morning we were hit by a coastal battery and will forever. Were you on the bridge when that battery yes, hit? Yes, I was, yeah. The watch was changing, and uh, I may have been in the chart house or was called to the bridge or something when first shells, and chart house was right by the bridge. You know. I, if I wasn't on the bridge when the first first shell was seen, I was there almost immediately thereafter and uh, because that was the place I needed to be. Where did the shell hit the ship? Aft and Mount 52, the after of our two 5-inch 54 turrets, it pierced the deck and exploded in the confidential books office a bit down between decks. Now, that was extraordinarily lucky because the confidential books office was reinforced because it was the repository for all the confidential books. It was reinforced more than other areas in the ship. So that although we had four wounded, a couple quite seriously, we didn't lose anyone killed, which was remarkable. How did the crew shape up after that encounter? Marvellously, I think. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. We came through that. We hadn't lost anyone. It was a, a bonding experience, not one you look back on with joy in any way, 
but drew us together because it, it tested our metal as a team. Are there any other particular memories from your nine months on Perth in Vietnam you'd like to share? From a professional point of view, the thing that was the most valuable to me, apart from the actual operational activity in the Gulf of Tonkin and off the coast there, was working with the US 7th Fleet units, which were assigned to Vietnam. We're a tiny little navy, the Australian Navy. They do things on a scale that we you know, have difficulty almost comprehending in our mind. They have massive logistic trains. They have communications, equipments and bits and pieces that we were privileged to be given access to. Satellites were just coming in at this stage and this was opening up a whole new world. But the very experience of working with a fleet that size and being part of it was professionally very rewarding. We had to avoid the edge of a cyclone and then when we came home in April 68, we came down the east coast of Australia really feeling we'd done our job. And the the disappointing thing about coming home that way was that uh, we came home at a time when the the anti-Vietnam War sentiment was probably just about at its height. When we marched through the streets of Sydney, I wouldn't say we were well received by the public. There were people there. Booing and spitting and... Well, there were some doing that, you know. There were, there were some clapping and good on you boys and all that sort of thing, but nothing like the welcome home that one felt was... Warranted. Warranted by the circumstances. While still in training, John Lord found himself on an escort vessel for HMAS Sydney. Towards the end of your your time at Naval College, you get sent off to sea to live the life of a sailor for three months. And all of my year was sent off to join HMAS Anzac, which we did, which still had hammocks and things in those days. It was very much like a sailor, which was quite exciting for us. And during that, you did basic seamanship training doing jobs sailors do, but we were lucky enough in that Anzac was chosen to escort Sydney to Vietnam. So at that very early age, uh, we were deployed to Vietnam for a period of about, uh, I think the whole trip took about two weeks. And how was that first voyage? Was it eventful or...? Uh, No, the voyage was very straightforward and boring. Sydney was doing them all the time in those days, so they were quite quiet. And it was expected to be uneventful because um, Anzac's main gun wasn't even working, so all we had was two little 40-60 calibre small guns that worked on board the ship. So uh, obviously uh, no one in Australia or the Navy expected any real problems. So for us it was a great cruise. We kept doing our training and et cetera, et cetera. And then the excitement, of course, of uh, coming into Vung Tau with HMAS Sydney in a war zone was just uh, for young blokes uh, who hadn't quite graduated from Naval College was, was pretty... People would call it awesome these days. It was just... Uh, I can still remember the thrill we had, even though we didn't get any proper jobs to do, but uh, we were there. It's also a good uh, safe learning curve. It was the 11th voyage by then when Anzac was escorting us in May 68 and taking four RAR to Vung Tau, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Well and truly, the Vung Tau ferry by then. It, yeah. it was. It, it, it was. And the professionalism, of, I think, it, after we did that one, I then graduated and I went to Derwent as a midshipman to do 12 months sea time, and nine months in Derwent, three months in Sydney. During that Derwent time, we did a quick pop in and pop out, 48 hours with Sydney. That was... I can't even remember that. It was so uneventful and uh, I think it was overnight. But then when we joined Sydney for that last three months of our midshipman's time, Sydney was just such a professional, well-oiled machine in those uh, deployments. It was just superb. 
It was just good to be part of. Did you get time to go ashore at Vietnam? No, um, I did one coxswain's uh, job taking um, the army ashore in a landing craft heavy, LCH, which um, the bow touched the shore, but I didn't. I put it on the shore and then I backed it off and back we came to Sydney. That was the closest I got. Did you have any inclination to do so or you were quite happy to stay away? Um, it would have been nice because I do remember some of my peer group afterwards said, oh, I jumped off and touched the beach. And, you know, that was <laughs> real hero status. But uh, And you were being uh, too carefully adhering to the rules. We were. Most of us were, yeah. As I said, it was a very slick organisation. You got in, you got out. Everyone was running to times and it was, it was just very smart. Very Navy. Mm. Did you have the opportunity to interact with any of the troops you would have been picking up and taking back to Australia? Oh, yes, we did, because uh, you know, on these long uh, deployments from Australia, which used to take oh, about two weeks each way, I think, played volleyball, did all these things and uh, mixed a fair bit with the troops. I guess we, though, as midshipmen, didn't we had a fairly heavy training program because we also had a midshipmen's examination coming up, I think, in June or July when we got back after that May deployment. But uh, I, I can't remember much of the interaction. They were a bit older than us, I suppose, probably mixed with the other officers in the wardroom a bit more than us. And we were a solid group living in a midshipmen's Mystic. So we weren't integrated into the wardroom at all. So you weren't hearing uh, stories from the front line, that kind of no. thing? That came later? It did come later. And then, of course, I did go back to Vietnam for six months in HMAS Brisbane. And that's where you mixed a lot more with troops and that with transfers of personnel. And then when you got back, you marched with them or things like that. And quite a few of uh, people of that era, Army and Air Force, then became very, very good friends of mine throughout my naval career. Before we get to Brisbane, so 68, the anti-Vietnam movements well and truly underway by then and increasing, increasing, increasing as time went on. Did that impact upon you personally at all or were you just more witness to it? Yes, it did. Just two stories. I remember before we went up there on one of the deployments, I was taking a girl out and at the end of the night she had a little cry and said, be careful. And I guess that hadn't ever impacted on me because once again, the excitement of being a young naval officer doing your job, like any person in their job. And that was around the Sydney deployment time. So that didn't impact what I do remember, though, is they were starting to get this protest in 68. It was more marked, that went, of course, around the Brisbane time, which was, what, 71 or 70, yep. 71. But in 68, they were starting to get an anti-movement, but it wasn't that obvious to me. And I was living in King's Cross in Sydney at the time as a bachelor. It wasn't that obvious to me, and it wasn't that obvious to the civilians I was then mixing with, or they weren't outspoken about it. No one was really too concerned at that time about Vietnam. It was more of a grumble rather than a cry. That's how it would appear to me, and I think it was probably happening at a more elitist level, and that's probably not true when you go back and have a look at it, and probably in the university level, but of course we weren't mixing with the universities that often. Um, we were out, we were young people, 18, 19 at the time, I think, and I'll be honest and say my social groups were nurses and people who were working like us, and amongst that group, Vietnam wasn't a big thing. You were just in it. We were just in it, and you know, we wouldn't go to parties and everyone talk about it every night. None of us would talk about it. So when do you finally qualify as a midshipman? My final examination was in 1969, and um, in the middle of the year, we got promoted to sub-lieutenants. The training system changed then. We were supposed to go to UK for a year's training, or 18 months training, in fact. But they changed the system and delayed us six months, and we didn't go to UK to finish our training until uh, January um, 1970. So that last six months, we went back to Naval College and did a uh, type of first-year university studies type course. And was that more compressed to get through it? Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. They basically took the year you did in UK at uh, Royal Navy uh, Training College Dartmouth and compressed it to six months. So it shows you what the year in UK must have been like. It was fantastic. They didn't have to work too hard. 
Earlier this episode, David Dwyer finished his cooking course and was posted to HMAS Anzac as a galley cook. They were short of leading hands. Why they picked me, I don't know, but I was made a watch leader with another AB. We were in four watches, four shifts, two cooks. There was also a um, wardroom galley which had four cooks in it, those single cooks, but later two of them came out into the main because two of our cooks left and weren't replaced and there were two cooks in the wardroom galley, the officer's galley, which I never worked in, in HMAS Anzac. Uh, the galley in Anzac was on the upper deck behind the stack, which was great. It was quite cool, plenty of air, bit primitive. We had an electrical stove and um, and a steam big pot, 50-litre pot, and a skylight. And when we hit heavy weather, the weather would, uh, if the waves were high enough, they hit the skylight and come down on the electrical range and fuse it. In 68, I think it was, we were sent to Vietnam to escort Sydney as an escort which was a bit of a joke because we had one turret on board, no breech blocks in the turret, and two wooden tampions down the barrels to stop water entering. Why are you so poorly armed? We were a training ship. We were, that was uh, decommissioned as a warship uh, destroyer uh, in the destroyer squadron to be a training ship. We had midshipmen on board, ordinary seamen on board under training. So you're less of an escort ship and more a decoy target. <laughs> That's about the only thing you could really say. Our anti-submarine, the sonar, worked quite well, evidently, from what I was told, in the radar. We had four bofers, I think. Two of them worked very well. We had squid anti-submarine mortars. So let's go to 21 May 1968, where Sydney is departing Brisbane with four RAR and Anzac escorting. How well do you remember that first voyage to Vietnam? I remember it well because we went alongside prior to that and uh, the Naval Association took us ashore for a dance and uh, and then to a party afterwards. So, yeah, I remember that quite well. It's just the normal ship's routine except we were um, at a higher alert. Being a training ship, you learn the action stations, et cetera, et cetera. Mine was a damage control and fire party. We just exercised that more than anything else. We got to Vung Tau where we circled Sydney around and around Sydney just in case uh, there were divers. Then we anchored. By that time, she was pretty proficient at unloading. Unloaded and uh, we took off via um, uh, Singapore, but we didn't call in. We kept going and we split up just after the Coral Sea. We went to Darwin and Sydney went back to Sydney town. Tell me about the day-to-day of being a cook. It's actually a pretty full-on job. Heavy work, long hours. Usually it's um, start at 8 in the morning, 0800. You take over from the watch that's there. They've done the preparation for lunch. So depending what watch you are, you start lunch. The other watch that's come on is probably duty watch and they're getting their preparation ready for the evening meal. Uh, you cook it all up, put it on the bain-marie. was basic in HMS, HMAS uh, Anzac because there wasn't a cafe. It was messing where they came up. In that case, we put the meal on as they came filed past the Bain Marie. We put uh, the food on as they requested, and then they went down to their mess to eat it. Washed up down in the mess in a big bucket of water, and they stowed their knives, forks, and everything down there. And their leading hand would make sure that they're washed properly because hepatitis could spread if they don't wash up properly and do it hygienically. We'd then take all the uh, Bain Marie apart, throw everything out that was left wash up all the pots, the pans, clean the, the galley out. By that time, uh, duty watch had started to prep for dinner. We'd go down to the mess probably around about 3 o'clock, sit down in the mess to have a cup of tea, and then uh, duty watch would start getting ready for the first dog watch. 
to feed them. They were from uh, four to six, I think. We'd go up and, and serve because they were cooking the, the meal and, and putting it on the bromery cut, topping it up. And we would stay up there with them till the end of um, the meal. Then we would help them clean up. They would have also, um, they clean up and they make sure that they've done preparation for the next day for lunch and preparation for their breakfast. Breakfast, if you were duty watch, you would get up at four in the morning and uh, go into the galley and start cooking breakfast and get it ready. So they'd, um, the morning watch would uh, come in and then you'd feed them. And they'd, No, they'd be last fed, that's right, because they were on watch. And uh, the others would filter up and get their breakfast. Usually scrambled eggs. It was pretty basic. Fair all the time, scrambled eggs, fried eggs, sometimes poached eggs in preference to fried eggs. Bacon, always bacon. Train smash, which is tomato war gratin. Toast, they used, in Anzac, they cooked down in their mess. They had toasters down there. And um, sometimes grilled lamb chops. They fed them a lot of food, and a lot of it was uh, high energy food, I suppose, because they worked pretty hard on board. And uh, after breakfast, you'd uh, clean up, ditch anything that was left over because we just didn't have anywhere we could hold something if we had a lot of scrambled eggs left or anything like that. They'd go in the bin and um, we'd clean up the galley. And at uh, 0800, the um, second duty and duty watch had come into the galley. We'd take the bins out, empty them down the gas chute at the back. Never had garbage disposals in those days. It went over the side. And that was uh, continuous all the time you were at sea. Uh, we'd come alongside, we'd load ship, load stores on, go and, go and give a hand. That was uh, In Anzac, it wasn't too bad. I think they had about a 30-day impress where we had meat for 30 days, dry stores probably a lot longer. We'd help load ship. Anzac was an old ship. It was a hot ship, but a very good crew. We had a, a very good captain and a good executive officer and a really good crew, very happy crew. So a happy crew is a happy ship. And a happy ship's a good ship. I enjoyed my time on Anzac so much I tried to forego my sea time to stay on there another year, but not knowing that you had to do it before you got onto a posting note. And I was on a posting note and went before the captain and or the executive officer and he said, well, you're on a posting note, you can't stay. So I would have gladly have stayed another year because you had a pretty good trip around Australia coming up. Posted off there and uh, at the end of 1968, back down to Cerberus, which is fortunate because I'm a Melbourne native. I was an able seaman qualified then and I'd done part one and two for promotion to leading cook. Uh, that happened in 1969. I got married about two months after that. And uh, two months after that, I had a posting to sea again. So it's usually a two-year rotation unless you got promoted. It was shorter because you had to have two years at sea in the rank. I was posted to HMAS Sydney. I joined Sydney in February 1970. And now we'll finish with the two Dugs, senior and junior. And uh, I, was, I was at uh, service. Dad was there too. Dad was at service at the same time. He was uh, in the cookery school by this stage. He was in, in charge of all the... All the cooks at the cookery school. I was sent down to Cerberus course, and at that stage, we had them bloody ward had broken out, and I was kept down there, and uh, you know, with the training and the, the ship's company, and that that was virtually the end of my naval careers, other than being a, a sore, shore-going sailor. Is that the time when you and your son overlap? Oh yeah. We've spoken about your father and your brother, and we talked a little yeah, bit about Yeah, and the son were in the same ship, yeah. And another son, he was there too. We all got together, the late 60s and early 70s. 
but you managed to thankfully avoid Vietnam. You'd served in World War II, oh, Korea, yeah. Malayan emergency. Yeah. You managed to avoid a fourth conflict. I was looking forward to coming home, you know. Be closer to the family. Yeah. Your grandson, Bradley, has served, and in 2018, your great-grandson is joining yeah. the Navy as well. Yeah. And his sister, she joined it. I don't want to know what's happened there. I never got the full story. But uh, it's one of those things that's never talked about in the family. And at the moment, my daughter's grandson, Jack, is about to enter the Navy. When you look at the strong military tradition in your family, are you proud? Are you? Do you think they should move on to something else? How do you feel looking at this long history well, behind you and in front of you? No, it's done, it's been done, and that's how it is. And anything I've done, I've more or less bloody stood by it and been proud of it, and I've never let the side down. Fair enough. And you leave the Navy finally in... 1972, as we discussed, and then do you go back to being a butcher in Civvy Street? What do you do? I did, but myself, health buggered. I buggered up, but I uh, finished up. I had five lumber operations, and, and yeah, eventually the rehabilitation people uh, got hold of me and they found me a job. I got a job, and uh, you'd never guess what it was. I got a job as a bloody a librarian. Really? In the uh, research and development in the Navy. But 16 years later, I was still in the same job. I had a stroke about four years ago. Well, I'm glad you're still with us and have recovered from that stroke. I'm all right. I'm just a bit feeble and, and things like that now. For a 91-year-old, you've got a strong handshake. Oh, well, I try my bloody best, you know, <laughs> and let these young blokes know what's going on. That was Episode 3, Vietnam, of Life on the Sea. In this podcast, John Carroll spoke about Andrew Robertson. We interviewed Andrew in Season 1. Go and listen to the two-part conversation between the former Rear Admiral and Angus Horden in number 11, Andrew Robertson, Volume 1 and Volume 2. In the next episode, we hear from a first-hand witness of the tragic Melbourne-Evans collision in 1969, where 74 lives were lost. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.